Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Old Dad Jazz Podcast. I'm your host, Matyash, and today I have with me Arian Wine. I'm, she's a PhD, so she's a doctor in psychology. We're going to talk about cognitive science, how our mind works, how malleable our memory is, and how the more emotionally charged the memory is, the more likely it is going to change. Ooh, very interesting. We're gonna go into her story, how she moved to Sedona, the spiritual change in her life uh, prior to that and around that time as a result of prayer and spiritual work, synchronicities she experienced. We're gonna talk about the classic psychology studies, the Milgram experiment, and the Stanford prison experiment and we're going to talk about psychoanalysis we're going to do a little demonstration and we're going to talk about forgiveness and how forgiveness might help you lose weight Ooh, this and much more in this podcast so sit back relax and enjoy the podcast Welcome to the new episode of All That Jazz. I'm your host, Matyash, and I have with me Irene Wine. I think I pronounced that right. Hi! <laughs> Hi. Um, welcome to the podcast. Um, I think I discovered you on, uh, on YouTube randomly some time ago, and now here you are. We're talking. Now here I am. <laughs> so um, your background is in psychology, right? Yeah. So what got you interested in psychology? Why you got into into it? I would love to tell you about that and a little bit about myself. So yeah, my name is Arian, and I am Dr. Arian Wine. My PhD is in psychology, so specifically the part of psychology that is research. So I'm interested in the academic question of how the mind works. So my specialty is in cognitive psychology or cognitive science. And so basically the reason that I'm interested in that field is that it answers the exact type of question that I personally am the most passionate about. Hmm. So what I really love and care about is the basic question of how our mind works. So these are questions like, what does it mean to pay attention? How do we get conscious access to our reality? How do we sense the world? What are our concepts like and how does memory work? And that like underlying basis of our mental world, that is my passion and what I've researched and I've applied so many things that I've learned to my own life and I absolutely love talking about them. So thank you for inviting me and giving me a space to talk about them with you. I am very excited for our conversation. Cool, cool, you're welcome. Um, so PhD, that's like, uh... That's the top ladder of academia, isn't it? Like PhD is the top level you can get. It's the top level you can get in America. I think they have a higher level in uh, in other countries that just dedicate, that like, you know, indicates different levels of learning or different dedication to your field. But as far as like training goes, yes, I, I went as far as I could. Mm. I want to apologize for my voice. I don't know what's happening today. It just started like an hour before we literally, uh, we ran online but but that's it is what it is it sounds a bit a bit weird maybe uh <laughs> to me. 
Um, let's see. Um, so what? Uh, let's talk about memory, because last time sure. when we spoke off air, uh, I have my hypothesis about it. I think it's like if, um, especially if there's a very emotional charged memory it would seem that that memory would change the more you rehash it because you can, might add things on. Is that born by research as well? Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we had a great conversation about that. <laughs> and yeah, let's talk about it more. Oh my gosh. Yeah, emotion and memory is like so ridiculous because like they're almost like completely opposite ends of ourselves. Like mm. our mental self is very detailed and specific and we like we trust our mind and our memory to be accurate and correct yeah. on the other hand emotions are like uncontrollable and super powerful and all over the place and shockingly it turns out they do influence each other right who knew <laughs> <laughs> who knew these systems were compatible are they i don't know I don't think right so. so um so the more so is there any like research like specifically about uh, if somebody has a negative memory of something um, that they change it in a negative way and vice versa, if there's a positive one that they, they omit the negative ones and they see only the positive? Yeah, absolutely. That's something that we do. So uh, your question makes me think of this really cool research that is done in memory as it relates to emotion that I would love to talk about for just a second. And I think, yeah, I think I mentioned this last time we talked, but they did this, they did these awesome research studies where they were looking at the role of emotion in memory. And the overall picture is that just because emotions are so strong, they're so energetically strong, they actually lead to stronger memories. Mm. So anytime that you're experiencing a powerful emotion, whether it's positive or negative, it's going to lead to a to us solidifying whatever is going on in our experience to a greater level. So we have a stronger memory. So like from our usual experience, like uh, if you just ask people like to talk about their memories of their recent past, what is most likely for everybody is we talk about the most emotional content. Right. And the reason for that is those are actually stronger memories, but also like we like being activated by our emotions. Mm. So what they did in this research, however, is they decoupled the emotion from the actual content. So the way that they did this is that they had, they had people, so there's many different versions of the study I'm gonna talk about, but I'm just gonna give one example, is they have people read a piece of paper that has information on it. And they're like, mm -hmm. hey, I need you to memorize what's on this piece of paper, right? Seems simple. Meanwhile, they're making the person who's reading the paper go walk out on a bridge over like a canyon. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's absolutely, I mean, for me, that would be absolutely terrifying because I have a fear of heights. So like, I don't have an insane fear of heights, but I have some fear of heights. So if you make me like walk out on that bridge, the idea is like that activates your emotion. You're scared. Hmm. Meanwhile, you're supposed to do something completely separate, which is like read and memorize this piece of paper. So that was the experimental condition. In a control condition, they have people walk out on a bridge that's not over a chasm, like it's just like a couple feet off of the ground. And they're asked to memorize the paper. And what they found is that the people who were memorizing, you know, the text on that paper, who walked out over the scary bridge had a much stronger memory that lasted <laughs> longer. <laughs> wow. 
Yes. So maybe, maybe we should do extreme sports while we're studying for university. <laughs> like bungee jumping. <laughs> Can you imagine? You're studying, you're, you have an audiobook in your head and you do a skydive. <laughs> That's hilarious. I love that. People mem- remember it more. Yeah. yeah, I think that'd be, uh, although that would be costly research because you'd have to fly people up and, you know, drop them <laughs> and then fly them again and drop them for the whole audiobook. You do that for months. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for research. I had to do this for research. Oh, yeah, of course. As long as we get the grant, we're fine. Just we need to just to get the grant and then we'll, then we'll go. Then we'll worry about finding the participants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, lo- as long as they don't die, the parachute needs to work. And that's all we care about. <laughs> if, if you need help writing that consent form, you let me know. <laughs> Would that be ethically troubling, that uh, study? I already feel ethically troubled just talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, if they consent to it, you know, it should be okay. If we take- It should be fine, yeah. Yeah, I mean- People die of this, but rarely. If you take precautions, then <laughs> it should be fine. Get your skydivers training and read a book and participate in research all at the same time. Yes. It, it would be like uh, Tom Cruise, you know, that uh, he, he does uh, some movies. He skydives a lot, so he's become an expert in that. So, Oh, very cool. Yeah. Um, all right, let's talk. Um, so you're a professor as well now that you've, uh, oh, there we go, coffee. I brought a prop. Maybe uh, me drinking this will help your voice. Me, I'm, uh, voice. I'm drinking uh, tea in this. Uh, oh, are you? oh, are you? Oh, let's see. Is that Santa? Yeah, there we go. Nice. There you go. Green tea. Oh, is it green tea? Oh, that's so nice. Green tea uh, affects me very strongly. It's more strong than coffee to me. Really? I don't drink coffee myself. I don't know what it would do to me. There you go. Uh, you're doing great, by the way. That's what it says in the cup. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing great. Yes. Doing great. Um, oh, also, um, uh, you're in Sedona right now, which was a coincidence because last time you spoke, I was like, you, you said you're in Arizona. I was like, wow, have you ever been to, uh, to Sedona? And you're like, yeah, I am in Sedona, which is amazing. Yes, so how, and you were there. How did that happen? How did you end up in Sedona? Oh, my gosh. Well, um, well, so I grew up in Arizona. I grew up in a different place in Arizona. I grew up hmm. in Tucson, which is the actually it's like one of the one place in the world or it's like in the desert, this one place in the world that has the cacti that are like this, the saguaro cactus. Mm. That's where I grew up. But um, I, so Sedona is about 300 miles north of that. And oh my gosh, I mean, Sedona is just, it's just so gorgeous. It's so like the vibration here is so high. Like you're actually living basically in a crystal. Yeah. Basically living in a giant red rock quartz crystal with a creek and it's so beautiful. Um oh. I ended up coming to Sedona last year for about 40 days. I came out alone. I had visited before and I had a really positive experience. So I promised myself I would come back. And then when it was time for me to come back, I didn't do it. 
Mm. And I just like got cold feet and decided not to go. And then the like pressure I felt inside and outside to just do the thing I was scared of doing kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger until I finally was like, all right, fine, I'll just go. I didn't know anyone. I knew one person in Sedona. I never saw them, but I came out here for 40 days by myself and I had an overwhelmingly positive experience. Yeah. Uh, was this like years ago? Uh, this was last year. Oh, that's last year. Okay. Wow. So that was part of where I was uh, not sure about traveling, but I like, you know, I did the quarantine thing and I just got myself out here. Oh, so you just traveled just before quarantine. You, you, you went to Sedona and you stayed there basically. That's it. Yes. Oh, I love it. Like Sedona is one of yeah, my favorite places. Oh, um, well, I went there because I went to uh, see a lecture of David Hawkins. So I must have been there in either 2010 or 2011 uh, because that's when he was still doing the lectures. Then he died in 2012. But uh, yeah, so I was there, I think, once or twice in Sedona, and I really loved it. It's like uh, you have the the red rocks all around the town and the town is pretty small. It's like 10,000 people. And, uh, one time I stayed in this super eight hotel, which was, I don't know why I just remember ordering Domino's pizzas and thought it was so cool. They delivered it right to the hotel door. I gave them the number and, and they came right to the door and it was so cool. And, um, yeah, and yeah, seeing, uh, Dr. Hawkins was obviously the highlight for me. I gave you some, uh, I gave you one video. Did you, uh, did you see? I did. He, he was, uh, he was an amazing guy. Yeah. Yeah. Was that like an example of the talk that you saw? Um, well, that was uh, earlier that I think uh, what's, what I sent you was like the story of him uh, being pulled over by a cop, which was like from 2002. So he was old then, but when I saw him in 2010 and 2011, he was much older. You know, he was like 83, 84, you know, he was, uh, he was way up there. Um, okay. Yeah, but he's unique that he, he has a scientific mind and that he, um, he became enlightened. Um, but I understand you have a spiritual interest as well. You're, it's not just the psychology that's drawing you obviously to Sedona. It's something, it's uh, something more, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, to put it lightly. Yeah, I've uh, had a uh, complete, complete reset of my entire life over the last mm, three or four years. And uh, what I would call a spiritual awakening where I, I actually asked for it. I remember there was a point where I was like, yeah, so part of my background is I, I am very intelligent and I'm a special, unique being and I have things I want to do with my life. And when I finished my PhD program, I was so burnt out, I couldn't do anything. I can't imagine why. I can't, <laughs> I can't imagine why that would happen. And so I took basically a year, it took me a year to recover. And then I was like, okay, now I want to do the next phase of my life. I want to do the next things that I want to do, which is I want to write a book and I want to start a YouTube channel and I want to do all these things, but I, I couldn't do it. I had so many things that were holding me back. So even though I had achieved 
my PhD, I'd gone through a specific program where you have a mentor and you have an entire department that is helping you go through these milestones. But the next things I wanted to do, I wanted to do on my own for me. And I couldn't do it. I was like paralyzed. I was like, basically all of like my insecurities started coming to the surface and I cried to spirit and to God. And I was like, I don't know who up there thinks I could do this by myself, but I can't, I need help. Hmm. Oh, and I had no idea what I was asking for. <laughs> yeah. No idea whatsoever. And uh, yeah, that was the beginning of much greater self-awareness in the spiritual realm, which eventually brought me to Sedona. So in effect, long story short, prayer is effective. It, it basically brought about what you couldn't do by yourself. <laughs> Don't think you're not being listened to. <laughs> you think no one's listening. No, 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 no. You're lucky if you think no one's listening. You're being, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I have so many beautiful spirits that are around me. Um, yeah. You, wait, whoa, whoa, hold on. Hold on. You, you, see, <laughs> you see the spirits now? Uh, well, I mean, I mean, right now I see you. You're a spirit in a body. Yeah, but, but you know what I meant. I meant. No, I don't see like uh, like a like figures around me. Okay. Um, but I see like I I uh, yeah. So there. Well, this is like there's different ways that you can be um, more psychically attuned. Like the I forget what they're called. The Claire's. They're called the Claire's. You can be like Claire Audient, Claire Sentient, Claire hmm. Cognizant. And I have different ones of those that I tune into. So like, I, I have feelings that I've learned to pay attention to. I learn to go towards what feels good mm. and stay away from what feels bad or where I'm being blocked. And when I follow that, I have amazing experiences where I run into like the right people at the right time. And that also is scary to do. And then when I don't listen, I end up in tricky, horrible situations I didn't need to be in. For example, that's one way that like hmm. I experience spirituality in my daily life and have incorporated it into who I am. Synchronicities as well, right? When you um, listen to the, or when you're in the flow, let's say, then things uh, magically appear before you. But when you're not, then maybe, oh, let me see, the opposite appears, like what you don't want. <laughs> um, yeah, you experience synchronicity um i would have to say yes although uh most of them escape my mind at the current time but uh okay uh, i have one uh, it was relating to psychology uh before i i went to i'm attending university of glasgow now but before i i got in i was attending a one-year um college what they call in, in uk which is basically you get the hires it's like uh it's like equivalent to high school i guess so we had like five different subjects and i was attending that for a year and uh it was amazing and towards um towards the end we did the, all the final papers and all and this was already in the pandemic so this was like april may june of last year and uh I endeavored so hard to do this psychology paper and like uh, I wrote it like four different mini essays and way, way more than I had to. And, and usually I don't do much work. So this was like to me a lot, a lot of work. And then the feedback came back that this is too much. And I don't know why I just got so, uh, so upset because of that. And 
as a result of that, for some reason, I, I, when I started to meditate, a lot of it, some, a lot of things happened here, like my neck or whatever. And then for some reason, I started adding a lot of people on Facebook, which ended up, I ended up using a lot of those for my podcast that I had added. So that is just a weird story. I went from 600 friends to 5,000 in a matter of four months. <laughs> I know. I just kept Whoa. adding people. So yeah, based on that, I don't. I, that was a kind of trigger. I don't know why, but me getting upset was a kind of trigger. And I was like, yeah, I don't care. I'm. Just, I just started adding people. Maybe as a high or something. I don't know. I don't know what it was. But it sounds like you actually found real connections from doing so. Yes, uh, unexpectedly so with uh, a lot of different people. And that was uh, more of a blessing than a curse, I would say, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, wonderful. But when we talked about prayer, I just want to say that be careful what you wish for as well. Because one time, this is three years ago, I prayed that... Um, I would learn things quicker. So, but this is a very dangerous prayer. I don't recommend that because what happened was a long story short, this guy, I was working in a hostel and this guy was, uh, uh, he was just out of prison. And uh, when he, I didn't know this, but he was a guest and he got rowdy with, with one of my coworkers there. And I ended up having to kick him out, but then, before I kicked him out, he um, he decided he's going to go on his own. And just before he left, he made an issue about towel. It says towel for rent, you see. But he thought he'd get a pound back, which is, a, I guess, an alcoholic logic. You know, you get a pound back. You rent the towel and you also return the towel and you get the money back. That doesn't make sense. I guess in some way it does. You rent, you rent the money as well. Right. That's You're, something different. Yeah. Right. Okay. You rent the money and then you get it back as you return a towel. Uh, is that how it works? Anyway, uh, so long story short, I, I got uh, choked and uh, he tried to rob us. He tried to rob us, basically. Yeah. I did escape quickly, but he slammed my head somewhere and uh, I was bleeding. But I escaped in, in about 20 seconds, but it seemed like an eternity, though. It seemed like a long time. So yeah, that's my warning. Be be careful with that prayer, basically. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're <had> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm fine. I'm fine. Oh my gosh. Um, be careful with that prayer. I want to learn more quickly. Okay, I will. Yeah, or, may, or maybe, uh, or maybe that was my karma at the time. I don't know. Um, what's your understanding of karma? Oh, I definitely have an understanding of karma. <sighs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my understanding of karma is that <clears throat> many of us have, you know, taken too much energy or something like this from certain people or from the world, maybe in this life, maybe in a past life, maybe in another way. And that that gets rebalanced eventually where it's like, oh, maybe in the past you took too much. And so in this lifetime or in this experience, you are going to have no choice but to give and you're not going to understand it. That's mm. part of my understanding of karma is like, it's not happening on like the here present mental level where you can fully understand it. It's like, I don't know why 
I needed to do this, but for some reason I needed to do this. So for example, something I'm learning is to ask for help and to like let myself get help because I wanna do everything on my own in case you can't tell. I do everything independently, but guess what? I'm living in like a giant world full of a ton of people. I'm not supposed to do everything by myself. I'm supposed to be part of the greater whole. So it's really important for like me to be in the right balance with who I am and with the world to ask for help. And then it's also important for me to give help in the way that is like meant for me to do that. So like, I feel like that's part of my karma I'm learning. I've helped people before. And so I now I need to allow myself to be helped. And if I was always asking for help, then it would probably be time for me to start helping others. Hmm. What about you? Um, what's the question? <laughs> oh, karma. <laughs> I don't karma. know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like um, karma? Do you think it's cool? I don't know. <laughs> I think uh, I think karma is like uh, basically lessons. It can be viewed as punishment, but I think it's more like lessons. So you, um, um, I don't know, you can't learn to forgive a certain type of person and that type of person keeps showing up in your life again and again and again and again because you don't like <laughs> or or maybe you've done something or maybe you were that kind of person in a previous lifetime, let's say. And so the roles reverse. Or maybe you were, you keep getting your things stolen, but in a previous lifetime, you are a big thief, let's say. And you're like, oh, you know, I'm a good person. Why do bad things keep happening to me? Well, you know, you're learning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're learning. So yeah. what do you do when you like, realize something like that is happening like what advice would you give if you're like okay the same thing keeps happening over and over again what do you do uh i think uh <laughs> i think first of all not to be naive like uh lo love your brother bert but always keep an eye on him you know because i think sometimes people have um they have good intentions but that doesn't jive with what's really happening in the world um, you know, in psychology, I think uh, in, in the class, we went over, over the Milgram experiment and the Stanford prison experiment. And those are just uh, scary. Um, I think you know more about them. Let's, let's go there. <laughs> you want to talk about it? the Milgram oh, experiment? Sure. I think it's about, it's, it's about a switch or something, or it's about the voltage, fake, uh, yeah. fake electroshock, right? That's right. Right. Yes. Yeah. I talk about the, I talk about both of those in my psych class. It's actually coming up next week oh, in social psychology. There you go. Yeah. In social psych, I always say there's two sections of social psychology. One is the positive side, all these cool things we know about how humans interact. And then we also need to look at the dark side, all of these horrible things that we have done to each other just for experiment's sake, for example. So both the uh, so the Milgram experiment and the Stanford prison experiments are just experiments where we still did horrible things to each other. So the Milgram experiments were experiments that were done after World War II in mm -hmm. order to help understand how the Holocaust could have happened. So a major thing that, okay, so to take a step back, um, on a global level, there were these world summits after World War II to try and figure out like, you know, what to do next but also how did this happen? So how did like a bunch of people start extinguishing a bunch of other people? And so people who are actually working at the concentration camps were interviewed. And a big thing that they said about, you know, how could you 
run a concentration camp? How could you actually kill mm. other people? They would say, I was following orders. I had no choice but to follow these orders. I was under just as much manipulation as everybody else. And this is just like, this is just the side of the coin I was on. Right. Basically, they were saying anybody in my position would have died. And this is where the Milgram experiments came from to see if we just obey authority, even to the point of, you know, taking somebody else's life. Wow. So, yes. And basically, that's what the Milgram experiments found again. So in these studies, they set up it, it was so it was a fake scenario but they set up these fake scenarios where if you are the participant you see an ad around town so this is like in the late 40s and 50s you see an ad that says um we're recruiting people for an experiment we're paying this amount of money and you know you just show up for like an hour hmm. sometimes they said you know it's a local university but anyway you would show up and they would say they would give you a random number and there would be other participants in the room with you they were also given a random number. So it wasn't actually random. You as the participant were always going to be the person obeying authority, potentially right. killing somebody else. But you were made to think that you could have been the victim. So you got a random number and they're like, okay, you're assigned to be the experimenter, to be the questioner. And they would sit you down in this constructed space, which is really effed up. Um, so <laughs> you would be sit, sat down in front of this like giant board of switches. And this is something like anybody can Google and look at like a documentary of and look at images of. It's really like fascinating actually. So this is a giant board of switches you're sitting in front of and there's a big glass in front of you. There's another room on the other side of the glass and there's a person sitting in there. Mm. And this person is strapped to a chair with a bunch of electrodes all over them. Yeah, so you sit down in there and not only that, but there is an authority figure standing behind you. Often this was a man in a lab coat, mm. although they varied what the authority figure was wearing. But so there's somebody standing like right behind you and they're like, okay, they're telling you they're like standing behind your neck and they're like, okay, here's what you're going to do today. The person in the room has memorized a list of responses and you're going to ask them a question. You're going to read a series of words and they need to say the response word. If they get it right, move on. But if they get it wrong, you just need to press one of these buttons. And you're like, oh, press one of these buttons. What's that about? And they're like, you know, uh, oh, it will administer a shock to punish them. <laughs> right. Great. Yes. So that's the setup. And basically that's what participants did. So the participants would sit there and read the series of words. The thing is, is that the person sitting in the room in the chair was a part of the experiment. This person is usually called the Confederate. They're they're in on it. Yeah. They're we're faking it. They're an actor. But uh, you, as the participant, don't know this. And furthermore, the whole experiment is rigged. So the person keeps screwing up, and you have to keep shocking them. The thing is, the shocks got successfully sh successively stronger with each with each wrong answer. So they'd be like, please turn, please move up another voltage. Please move up another voltage. And the person who was being shocked was an actor, but they kept having increasingly painful experiences. They're like emitting like extremely painful emotions to the point where they eventually start screaming like, stop, you're killing me. I don't oh. want to be here. I don't consent to be here anymore. Let me out. Somebody let me out of here. So the participants themselves, like if you're the person in the study administering the shocks, they're obviously generally going through an emotional roller coaster. Mm. And often what would happen is the participant themselves would be like, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to shock this person. You know, they don't want to be shocked. And the key part of the study is what the authority figure would do. The authority figure would 
day standing behind them and would say something very simple, like planned out in the study, they would say something like, please continue. The experiment requires that you continue. You must continue. Please move forward. And they would say things like, you're not allowed to leave. Like you can't quit the experiment. Um, and then, you know, you can actually like watch different versions of this online. There's one version I usually show to my students where the, um, the participant is like being really vocal about not wanting to stay. And one thing they say is, you know, who's going to take responsibility if this person dies? And the authority figure says, I'll take responsibility. That's so the what they found, yeah, it's the worst. Yeah. So what they found in the original studies is something like 90% of participants administered some shocks and over half actually went so far as to kill, not actually kill, but kill the yeah. Shock the person so much they stopped responding. They would have killed the person if this was for real. Yes. Yes. Hmm. So the aftermath is they tell the participants, obviously, this is what the study was about. You didn't really kill them. But what happened that nobody expected was the long-term consequences for the participants, which is that this like permanently morally damaged them. Oh, wow. So that people who participated in these studies had like long-term depression and anxiety and mental health issues. And for a long time, the Milgram experiments were shut down. So when I took intro to psychology, um, the story was, you know, we don't do these studies anymore because it was immoral. However, in 2017, they restarted the Milgram experiments to see if this was still a real thing. Um, and now basically like uh, all the universities of California have approved them and they are increasingly done at different universities all over the world. And we find that people still will obey authority in the Milgram experiments. Wow, that's that's crazy. So how how did they ethically now justify doing these experiments? They're like, for the greater good, we must do these experiments because, you know, it doesn't matter if these people have PTSD and all that. We just want to know the truth, what's happening. Is that, that, that what's going on? Or did they get some kind of insurance for these people? They get traumatized? <laughs> They should absolutely have some insurance to these people. Um, as far as I know, the like the part of the logic of how it was approved is that the is that um, atrocities bigger than this are occurring in everyday life in the world right now, and that it's not like a bigger mental health risk to participate in this study than to just be a person who is like alive and aware of what's happening in the world at this time. But with that kind of logic, you could justify an experiment of stabbing somebody in 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 the back. We're like, oh yeah, we just needed to see. Sorry. Yeah, we just needed to see what would happen. Yeah, we just want to study how this this kind of blade and this kind of blade and this kind of person, how that happens. <laughs> right. That's that also seems like it'd be taking it too far. I think another thing that was said is that uh, a lot of a lot of people and authority figures were claiming that like nothing like the Holocaust could ever happen again because humanity's evolved so much. And so these universities were like, we're going to prove you wrong. People are still susceptible. This is still a part of our human nature, even yeah. though it's dark and it sucks. Does, uh, did you ever find in the psychology literature, uh, the donation of, uh, good and evil, the, that kind of, uh, <clears throat> moralistic stance, let's say. <laughs> that 
that's yeah there's a lot of talk about those things so one area of research is that talks about this stuff is uh the area of moral decision making mm. so this is falls under a pretty new area of philosophy called experimental philosophy where they're using science to answer philosophical questions you probably have heard of examples like this like the trolley problem oh this yeah like, yeah a mental scenario to think about that's a morally ambiguous thing to do right well which is like uh something like uh oh the trolley oh the trolley is like uh nothing it will cost you nothing if you just leave this trolley here and uh is that is that what it is if you just so, leave, uh, if you don't take the trolley back right the trolley yeah so that's like one example of the trolley problem the trolley Let's see, the trolley problem goes like this. There is a, there's a trolley coming down the track. Oh. There is somebody tied to the track who can't move. And if the trolley keeps going, the trolley will run over them and they will die. This is just a hypothetical scenario. That's not really happening. Hmm. Uh, however, and you're standing there, you're watching this happen. You're standing at the switchboard. And if you want to, you can flip a switch and the trolley will be diverted to an alternate track. However, on the alternate track, there's five people tied to the track. And they will die if you divert it. So what do you do? <clears throat> wow. Uh -huh. Yeah. So there you go. So what do you do? Well, obviously the utilitarian point of view would be to kill one person instead of five, you know. <laughs> nice. But maybe, maybe you should jump down and sacrifice yourself. That would be the highest moral virtue. <laughs> oh my goodness. I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> That would be the oh. highest moral virtue, wouldn't it? So you you personally are going to be able to stop the trolley. Well, are you, are you Superman? I think you might be. No, but uh, I'm just saying that uh, maybe that would be part part of. Uh, maybe that would be an answer that's not in the you know what would you do A B, but people could come up with. I think in extreme circumstances, people people do the extreme things that. Uh, you know, um, people have uh, been known to lift cars that normally don't, wouldn't be able to even, you know, lift a uh, hundred pounds or 150 pounds or whatever. They're able to lift, you know, uh, substantial amounts of weight. Like, uh, you know, uh, there's uh, there was a son that was trapped. I think the story goes, the son was trapped under a car that he was fixing and the mother came and like lifted up the car like these there's a lot of these stories yeah superhuman strength in, in the case when you actually need it and you and people summon up this uh superhuman strength it's incredible oh that is incredible yeah do so you think this, that we always have that strength or do you think it like comes through us in the moment i think it's it's the moment otherwise yeah it wouldn't be also people injure themselves as well when they do that a lot of times obviously oh. yeah like uh put i don't know how does i don't want to even say but the, like if, you know the, you get injuries obviously if you do things that you're not uh prepared for physically and uh um well did you ever read the uh, scott peck the road less traveled mm -mm. He, he talked a lot about uh, good and evil. Um, and, uh, but he became religious. And so he, he's kind of, his point of view was he was a famous psychologist. Plus he, uh, 
he became religious. So it's it's a funny thing because in his uh, books, uh, in one of his most famous books, uh, People of the Lie. You know who people of the lie are? It's people who, people who are evil. Basically. What is it? People of lie. People of the lie. Yeah. People of the lie. Yeah, like when you ask most people, what's the most important thing in your life? They will say myself. Uh, but people of the lie will say my self-esteem. Mm. So evil people will, will uh, lie, uh, cheat, or do uh, anything that's um in their power to protect their self-esteem so they don't have to feel bad about themselves mm. yeah sounds and he, like operating yeah go ahead and he even did like two exorcisms uh which was then the subject of his other book uh a glimpse of the devil and uh, i recommend that because I, I used to think maybe it's good you know you see you see um, an exorcism and it's going to prove uh, evils, thereby proving the opposite God. But then I read the book and it was so scary. I was like, nah, this is, this is not worth it, man. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah, okay. Um, I want to talk about something that's kind of controversial in today's psychology. Because one time I got into an argument with this lady that was studying psychology in Edinburgh. And she said, oh, it's a lot of statistics and all that. And I was like, what about Jung? What about Freud? And she's like, oh, these, these are old fashioned. They're old fashioned. And I kept pressing the issue. And then she, she stopped talking to me. <laughs> but You didn't invite her on the podcast? No, no. This was uh, <laughs> a few years ago. <laughs> it was actually funny. It was after the, an improv uh, show. Oh. Yeah. You were in the improv show? No, no, no. I went to see it. And she was also seeing it. But um, yeah, like uh, things like psychoanalysis, uh, Freudian and Jungian are not uh, as popular, I guess, as they once were. Do you have any, do you have any knowledge? Like what's, what's, um, is CBT more popular nowadays than uh, psychoanalysis? I think it's great that you bring up uh, Freud and Carl Jung because I think that definitely there, it's funny because like their name and the idea of saying like, I'm a psychoanalyst or I'm, I, you know, subscribe to Freud's principles has fallen out of fashion, like saying you follow these people. But however, their concepts are super relevant today. So there's two major concepts that come, one that comes from each of them that I think is like a big part of our cultural conversation right now. So Freud's concept of the ego, especially in the spiritual community, everybody is constantly talking about the ego. And what I would contribute to that discussion is that the ego is part of a larger model. So like the, yeah. So the way it's usually talked about is like operating from your ego is operating like what you were saying from like the people of the lie saying, I need to come from my self-esteem, like protecting your sense of self. So your ego is actually a part of a larger structure. And when it's imbalanced and unhealthy, then you're operating purely from your ego where you're trying to like protect a false story of who you are. And part of like our own personal development is learning about that story and releasing parts of that story that are no longer true. So the larger structure is that we have three parts, the ego, the story of who we are, and like 
which includes like our blueprint and our plan of what we're actually doing with our body and our time. So mm. we actually need that. Then another part of it is our id. So there's the id, the ego, and the superego. The id is our subconscious. These are all of our like bodily needs and desires and things that we've stuffed below the surface. We can like stuff this down there. So in a unhealthy way, we're constantly like stuffing down our emotions and our needs and things that we don't want to see because our ego is like, this isn't a good story. Us being like pissed off right now isn't going to work. So we're going to have to push that back down. Yep. That's yep. not healthy. So you don't want to be pissed off all the time. We need to let it come out at appropriate times. Yep. And then the other part of the structure is your super ego, your, which is part of Freud's structure. Your super ego is like your higher self or your idea of like who the perfect you ought to be. Wait, wait, did, did Freud say, said in the exact words, higher self? I think he'd probably say something else. <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> Now he's saying it's like a constructed part of your personality structure. Okay. Like what other people would think you should do. So you take that on like parents and stuff like that. Society. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Like what we learn is like school children, like the perfect little student you're supposed to be. Yeah. You know, in France is really popular. I don't I didn't realize this until I was there. Psychoanalysis. Because I knew this girl in France that uh, went twice a week. And it was like not not cheap. It was like 60 euros per hour, which is like in dollars, like $80 per hour or something. Yeah. Whoa, that's a lot. Did she experience positive benefits from it? Yeah, she said she understands herself more. Yeah, so, but I guess it's a long process. You have to... Uh, um yeah it takes a long time i also saw that the you know um cbt cognitive behavioral therapy is very popular nowadays but i saw that a lot of studies were comparing cbt to nothing we're comparing cbt to um placebo instead of like i would like to see uh, comparing cbt to psychoanalysis and go at it and see seeing the long term who's better you know that would be fun to do that would be fun have you ever done psychoanalysis oh um i have done some i've never like done uh like where i've actually found a therapist and done regular sessions with them it's more like i tried it out in my training and i like you know sometimes i'll do it with my friends or i'll do it on myself something i really like to do from psychoanalysis is free association so like like free association is you know you just take anything and you just see what that makes you think and take it to its like ultimate conclusions oh. my mug says you're doing great what does that make you think why what does that make you think why and then eventually you're like yes yeah, so i was crying in the park yesterday and i don't know why and i'm embarrassed oh <laughs> can like, we do can we do a short demonstration of this yeah let's do it uh okay i guess i'm the patient you're the expert yes you are <laughs> <laughs> Do I close okay. my eyes? That's better. Okay. Welcome to Dr. Arian's psychotherapy session. Mm. Today we're going to do free association. So you're in a safe space to say whatever comes to mind to me and all of your followers. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> no, no pressure at all. No pressure. But I mean, it's just an example. Yeah. 
So the idea is I'm going to say a word and you just say the first thing that comes to mind, just whatever feelings or thoughts are associated with that. We'll do a few of them. All right. Gotcha. Are you ready? <sighs> Butterfly. Grasshopper. It's wonderful. All right. Let's do another one. Water. Fire. Oh my goodness, that's so interesting. We'll have to talk about that. Cool. Okay, <laughs> is, it? is it? Is <laughs> it? interesting, yeah. All right, I'll do one more. How about volcano? Mm, a deep well. Oh, that's so wonderful. Okay, so you can come back to the moment. Yes, so let's talk about why you thought those things that you thought. One thing I noticed is when you, when I said a water concept, you said fire. And when I said a fire concept volcano, you said a water thing, a deep well. Hmm. Do you feel like there's any area of your life where you're balancing the fire and water? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I feel like uh, part of my life is that that I'm balancing certain explosive elements with certain calm elements, you know? I think, I think that's how it is. Is that, is that the, the takeaway from this? That there's polarity? Yeah, wow. I love that. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, it, uh, from what I've read, it said that those are the hardest elements to balance, fire and water. They are. Oh, my God. I need psychoanalysis right now. Who's going <laughs> to? You just got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, let's, Leah, let's talk about the, the, other, um, the other experiment I find more fascinating because uh, I oh, think yeah. it's done by that Italian-sounding guy, Simbardo. Simbardo, right? Oh. Yes, why don't you talk about this one? Okay, uh, and correct me if I'm where I go wrong because I don't, it's been a while. Um, so this experiment basically is, um, they got a group of students together. Uh, this is a paid experiment and they got them to be, and they assigned them roles. So I think, I think all of them were in the experiment, right? And they were, and some of them were prisoners and some of them were guards. And, uh, and these people were supposed to be in for, a, I don't know, a week or so. And, but the thing is that things start to go really wrong, really fast. And people start to get, to get more cruel as the days went by. Cause this was like nonstop. They were just inside there. This was, there was no, no break. And this was like, it was like a hardcore method acting, like people were in their roles. And what usually happens is that, is that they, uh, there was a push and pull. So the, the prisoners would, would misbehave, let's say, and the, uh, the prison guards would be more cruel because of that. They would like to try to enforce the rules. And they had to, I think they had to uh, finish the experiment in about three days because there was some there was just weird stuff happening that they were 
it was just too much. And uh, and I think his wife came, Zimbardo's wife came there, and or somebody, maybe his yeah wife to be or something came there, and she's like, "Nah, this is too much," and so they pulled the plug. That that's the long story short of what I remember from it. <laughs> Good job. Good job. Was, what did I miss out? What yeah. did I leave out? What I would add is, uh, yeah, so the Zimbardo prison experiment. Yeah, so it's done by Dr. Zimbardo at Stanford. And it was originally meant to be another study about like obedience to authority. Hmm. Uh, let's see some weird things that they did. So yeah, everybody, like you said, everybody's recruited equally. Like you're randomly deciding who's going to be the cop, who's going to be the prisoner. Yeah. But they also like, they took it really far in helping people get into their roles. So the people who were going to be the cops, they brought them in ahead of time and like told them to take ownership of the prison. They got to pick out their own outfit oh, and like, bond and do like male bonding stuff. I don't know about that. Uh, and then the prisoners, <laughs> <laughs> you would know more about that, whatever that is. And then the prisoners, they had actual real campus police pick them up and mm. handcuff them and bring them to the study. Oh, wow. So that's already outside the bounds of a typical experiment. But anyway, yeah, just what you said happened in the study. Like it was not supposed to go that long, but it went for a really long time. It went really far. So uh, again, like anybody who's more interested in it, I would say, you know, watch some videos. So you can see like footage of what really happened in there. But it went like on the psychological level, what was happening is that the prisoners were getting stripped of their identity where they were literally not identifying as their like their birth name anymore. They were identifying as like prisoner number something, something, something. Oh my God. They were doing extremely degrading activities that the uh, prison guards were having them do. They were put into solitary isolation. They were being tortured. They were being stripped of their clothes. They were made, being made to like sit in their own feces. They were being made to like abuse other prisoners. It was, it was insane. It got out of hand. And yeah, Zimbardo was just like, just sitting back and watching. So this is great heard, research. This is great research. <laughs> like, yeah, like my career is something. I don't know if he's thinking about his career, but he just like let it run. I don't think anybody thought it would go where it went. But yeah, the what I heard is that it's one of the grad students who was running the study. His girlfriend came to deliver a sandwich and was like, what is going on here? And she had to like call campus authorities to get them to shut it down. Wow. So and then they reported what happened. Yeah, and then he wrote uh, he wrote a report, a study, and then he also wrote a book about it. I think um, uh, didn't he write the Lucifer Effect or something like that as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great experiment, but uh, ethically nowadays it wouldn't pass the the ethics. Uh, what do you have commissions or something? Like it wouldn't pass that. I think. Has there any similar experiment been done since? Um, let's see. Yes. So there's always a human subjects uh, approval board that's approving if, uh, if yeah. anybody is going to be harmed by the study that's going on. Um, I actually don't know of like similar types of full immersion experiments. I mean, there's uh, there's definitely a history of these types of things. So another thing you could look into is the history of the Unabomber. So the person who ended up becoming the Unabomber, you may already know this, but he was um, the subject of like a private study. He was a Harvard student who was tortured for years as part of a Harvard study. Oh my gosh, I did not know this. Mm -hmm. And then when he got completely out of control, they just like released him into the wild and 
point. That's like the origin, literally the origin story of the Unabomber. So that's another example of like the dark history of psychology research experiments where yes, we are learning about the dark side of humanity, but the truth is we're not doing it in a bubble. We're doing it with like real people in the real world. Mm. Yeah, to, to paraphrase uh, an economist, Thomas Sowell, uh, when there's a modern disaster, there's always uh, a Harvard man in the midst. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not a fan of Ivy League schools myself, but but I'll leave that to another podcast. All right. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> let me see. Um, do you have? Uh, I know there's. Some, there must be some uh, research on resentments. I think resentments are such a. I find myself obviously in in my personal life, uh, you know, when I have resentments, I think I I have a few right now, but when I have like a really like a burning one, especially when somebody's like really close by, oh man, that's, uh, I don't know. I I feel like it raises your blood pressure. You know, it does, it does physical things as well. Is there a correlation between higher blood pressure and, and resentments? Yes, there is actually. Mm. Um, yeah, holding on to resentments or like long-term negative emotions or grudges is correlated with uh, heart disease. Oh man. Yeah, I bet, actually, uh, I, I bet yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's also correlated with like a higher body fat content. And one of the theories about that is like your body is storing that information. Oh, wow why wait so this would be a great weight loss uh experiment would be forgive and you you don't have to do anything else but forgive and then you're gonna lose weight (laughs) wow i did i never correlated those two together so maybe that's why people there's a great quote also by my favorite economist thomas soul because uh Sometimes he used to write a column. Uh, uh, it was like called something like "Passing Thoughts and Everything," and once he wrote that uh, most people, when they age, some no, some people when they age, they they turn into fine wine, while others turn into vinegar. So I guess those people that turn into vinegar, those are the people that that get fat usually. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, is that what it is? That can be like the tagline of your forgiveness weight loss course. Wow. <laughs> I love that. Forgive, well, one thing I would say, yeah, go ahead. Forgive or get fat. <laughs> or forgive or stay fat. That's, oh my gosh, that would be bad. <laughs> you, that's very powerful branding, my friend. <laughs> it is. I love that. It's it very is. powerful. I mean, it has to be a catching tagline, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're yeah. definitely gonna attract a target audience with that. <laughs> and maybe <laughs> maybe some uh, some lawsuits or some people that would be try to cancel me as well. Right, they're like, I actually don't have any resentments. Can I resent you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't have any resentments at all, but I really hate you. So that, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, somebody who has like a bad reputation should run this one. Yeah, like uh, <laughs> one thing I would say about resentments is like, you know definitely we can hold on to things from the past that we should let go of, but there also can be people who are like in our, or at least I'm speaking of myself here, but like there can be people who are in my current life who keep violating my boundaries or they keep 
hurting me. And in those cases, it's important to, like I have found it's been a struggle, but I've learned I have to first protect myself. I have to first be like, no, there's a boundary. No, you can't hurt me anymore. And like actually take care of that relationship. So I'm not being harmed anymore. And then I can work on forgiveness and peace. But like just telling yourself, like you shouldn't be resentful of a situation that's like ongoing and not good. At least for me, I've had to learn like, oh great. I have to actually go face this and tell this person like, and actually do the work being like, nope, this is my space here. I'm safe here. Then you can be like, oh, okay. Yeah. It'd be hard to, uh, to forgive when somebody is, I think it's not loving to yourself to have to be exploited and taken advantage of. And I think that's, I think that's a misconception. People think, oh, it's, it's bad to, 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 because the boundary sounds like a wall. You're creating a wall, but yeah, you, you have to, like some people are just bad. You have to, you have to have your space, you know, even ants have a place to sleep, you know, I think <laughs> if, they, if they sleep. Um, so what kind, what kind of, uh, so obviously studying psychology, you found that, um, are there certain things that you kind of strongly disagree and think uh, psychology is still uh, way behind on this particular subject? Oh, are you asking for my opinion? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so are you wondering if I have any resentments towards psychology? Yes. I yeah, do. yeah, yeah. That, that's it. Do you have any hatred towards psychology that you teach and, <laughs> and, and profit from? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I do. Oh my gosh. No, this is a great question. I would say there are, there's like, okay. Yes, I do have a thing. I do have a thing I would love to talk about, which is this concept that I call knowledge politics. Hmm. So right now, part of our like cultural conversation is the concept of uh, fake news or like false research. And so as somebody who is a full scientist, like I'm a full cognitive scientist, I'm a full data scientist. I fully understand how the scientific method works on people. Like that's my, that's my passion, that's my job. I think that the scientific method is a wonderful tool and I don't want anybody to like hear what I'm saying and be like, oh, all research is fake and BS and we shouldn't believe that. That's definitely not true. But from the perspective of okay so we're doing science on people we're getting real data we're doing this research in a diligent way then what happens next so this what happens next is where there are some gray areas where i personally have like my own ideological problems so what happens after like let's say you do your skydiving research study which sounds very fascinating let's say you do this research study and you're very diligent about collecting the data and you you know do all the approval ahead of time and you record everything and then you go to report this study. What happens next is you want to report this study generally in an academic journal in order for it to be accepted as actual data as part of like our greater body of knowledge of what's occurred. However, it's not guaranteed that the research that you've done is ever going to be published anywhere. Also, it's not guaranteed that the way you've researched this project is going to be the way that it's presented. So the journals and the people who are um, running the journals have authority over which information gets approved as actual science and how that information is presented. 
So this is a, like, this is not a problem that's just come up today. This is a really long standing set of issues. So one issue, it's called the file drawer problem, which is like a researcher does a cool study, nobody wants to publish it, so they put it in the file drawer. Mm. But part of the greater issue is that that is real actual information about what's going on. So you know, journals, they want to sell copies. They want to have like the most exciting sensational studies come out. But one of the problems of this is that we don't know all the information. There's, we're only seeing like cool things that the researchers may, yeah, somebody thinks is cool, but you might think something in the file drawer is cool or important. But not only that, another thing that happens is that you can tell I'm really passionate about this. Another thing that happens is um, just because of the way that our minds work, research that lines up with the way that we already think about the world and about psychology tends to be published more. And research that challenges the way that we think is published less. And so a few years ago, there were a bunch of like issues in how psychology research specifically and other fields were presented in the media, basically showing that yeah, there's like cheating and scheming going on. Like there were actual real big time researchers who were uh, fabricating data and using it to like prove greater philosophical points, which were very meaningful to the field. And this broke my little heart because I am like a knowledge idealist. Like I really, I care about knowledge and information. So like, do I like talking about the Milgram experiments and then Zimbardo experiments? No, that's freaking horrible. That's awful. But I actually do like talking about it because it's the truth uses actual real information about our humanity. And I think that it is like, like I think that knowledge is our birthright. I think knowledge doesn't belong to any one person. And so there are efforts out there to help revolutionize like the way, not just psychology research, definitely psychology research, but all types of research is documented and published. And there are efforts out there to try and improve this system. But on a much larger level, um, science and psychology science research is just ripe for a change, for a revolution, just like so many other systems that are on our planet. Like I personally, I do want to see all the, like if I'm really researching something, I do want to see all the failed experiments that look stupid and dumb. Mm. And uh, yeah, so we get to be the ones who are alive right now. We get to be the ones who help build a system where we get to see what we want to see. We do the types of research that we deem are important and hopefully have a greater level of transparency. But yeah, those are some of the issues that the field has been wrestling with since I've come up into the system and I do feel passionately about them. So there's a, there's a sense of there's a confirmation bias within uh, your field of academia and probably all the rest because they all have if the peers don't agree with what you've researched, then it doesn't appear in the journal because the peers that review it uh, don't agree that it's uh, insightful because it, it, oftentimes if it doesn't agree, if it's too, too far outside what the mainstream uh, field of that academic field uh, thinks, then they disregard it. Yes, this is a real pitfall that's happened many times. Wow. So <laughs> it, they, they become dogmatic. They become dogmatic basically yes mm. yes and part of it is like because it's like a part of our human nature to accept what matches what we know and reject 
what we don't want to confront. And so like that gets compounded out into research. <laughs> so that's part of like the projects to improve what's going on is like literally like, like I've been sent surveys by um, some of these organizations that are like, hey, can you take an anonymous survey telling us if you've ever lied or cheated in your research? <laughs> like legit. So there are people who are trying to improve it, but yeah, that's part of the idea is that like what we deem is like the truth from science can become dogmatic and it's a problem. Right. Well, what is the truth? That That's the whole uh, issue then. What is the truth? Like, uh, I feel like, uh, do you know uh, Rupert Sheldrake? His, uh, he did experiments on dogs and stuff and, and people that... Um, you know how sometimes sometimes you receive a call and before you look at the ID, you know who's calling you without having oh, yeah. To... yeah, well he did that, those experiments on like you name four people that you're the closest with and statistically you get 25%, right? Mm -hmm. But he gets that because oh, people name uh, the people that are they're really close and he gets 45%. So that's a significant statistical deviation. But the research like that, uh, that Sheldrake does is not, um, would not be in the mainstream because they'd be like, well, you know, we, we don't know what's going on. We can't, <laughs> we can't even begin to grasp what's going on, you know? Yeah, so that's- wow, that's really cool. Yeah, so things like that are, um, so, okay. People sometimes online attack other people for having cognitive dissonance. So can you explain, like, I often have heard this term, but you, can you explain to the audience what exactly it is? Maybe there's some <laughs> misconceptions about this. <laughs> You're asking me to talk about all my favorite things. This is great. <laughs> oh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, so cognitive dissonance in uh, research is a very specific thing that we do, it can be used in a more general term, but this is what cognitive dissonance is, which is cognitive dissonance is the feeling that we get when our actions misalign with our concept of who we are. Hmm. So for example, like my concept of who I am is I'm a healthy person. I value my health. I value my health so much. That's my self-concept. Meanwhile, I'm drinking this coffee. I'm drinking this this substance in here, this caffeine. So if somebody comes along or I read an article or let's say somebody actually comes up and confronts me because that would be stronger. And they're like, hey, why are you drinking that? I thought you valued your health. Don't you know this stimulates your fight or flight response and overall coffee can be bad for you. And it might make you feel more stressed out. Do you know it's not really healthy? And do you know it's also like not that good for the planet? Do you even know what the sources of your coffee? Yeah, you probably shouldn't be drinking that. So this moment where you're like, uh, what? that's cognitive dissonance. So the idea, like this is actually kind of hearkening back to what you're talking about at the beginning. This is where like your mental side and your emotional side are at a split. Like my mind is like, wait a second. I don't want to damage the systems of the earth and I don't want to hurt my body. Meanwhile, I do like coffee. So those don't really match. And the other side, my emotions are like, F you, don't talk to me. I hate <laughs> you, get out of here. I'm fine, everything's right. fine. <laughs> I'll, I'll 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 be the devil's advocate i know i don't drink coffee so i have Here. no i have no stake in the matter but i think with coffee is complicated because there's studies saying that it's good and there's other studies saying it's bad so if you go with um 
uh, with something more like sugar or something like that. Like, uh, so if you replace coffee okay, no. with sugar, then it would be like, what you're saying you're healthy, but you're, you're eating all this sugar. Like I've just had like gummy bears just like an hour ago, like, uh, but I'm not claiming to be too, too healthy. I'm just, like, <laughs> well, then you've avoided the cognitive dissonance. Right. Yeah, that right. would be a good example. Um, yeah. or if somebody go, okay, a good example, somebody goes to yoga and then after yoga, they, they go to the store and get a Snickers and then somebody would be like, you're pretending to be healthy and yet you're, you're <laughs> eating Snickers. Yeah. You're drinking your almond milk and smoking a cigarette. <laughs> yes. You're running a marathon yeah. and you're doing cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> that's too much yeah, so like how we feel right now that's cognitive dissonance where yeah your emotions and your mind split from each other okay let's i want to go specifically into let's say i'm i'm studying i'm saying that um that uh, okay let's see i'm saying that that donald trump was the greatest president ever and somebody online comes and says no this is your cognitive dissonance because uh, he's not uh what america is about or so i'm that interested in something that's happened in real life yeah so i'm interested in what in the argument itself like where is the cognitive distance they are i understand the behavior what about is it something let's say if i claim that um America is the greatest country in the world, but then also have criticism. Is that cognitive dissonance or what exactly is it there? So I think that uh, like the way cognitive dissonance is used online or just more casually is often we say this to another person, you know, usually you're saying it to another person. Yeah. But often we say this when we can see how somebody's like what they're saying and other information in the world doesn't match up. We're saying, yeah, but it doesn't. So uh, basically you're saying like, hey, you're not admitting some truths to yourself. The problem with that, however, is like, you can't actually force anybody else to see anything your way. We can only all see things from our own perspective. Even if you are trying to understand somebody else as best you can, you're still only understanding that from your own perspective. So I think cognitive distance is often used as a way to be like, you're just like basically telling somebody they're unintelligent to try and force them to take your viewpoint. Yeah, it's not an effective way to persuade somebody. <laughs> <laughs> right, it can be a way of uh, intelligently telling somebody they're being an asshole, <laughs> which may right. indeed be true. It's basically saying you're a hypocrite, basically. You're saying one thing and doing another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh. and I think another thing that goes on is like, there is so much information available in the world right now. Like there are so, there are so many like atrocities of humanity that are coming to light over the past few years because of the internet and because the bravery of people to report it and the bravery of people to see it. There are so many things I don't know about yet. So I could be doing something that actually is damaging or harmful to a certain system. And I truly don't know that information. And so somebody could come to me and be like, Hey, Arian, you're, you know, promoting something meanwhile that's actually bad for this other reason are you seriously telling us you don't know about this right 
So yeah. I think that's another thing that like is going on. Yeah, I reserve the right to not know everything. <laughs> like, you know. I love that and I'm writing that down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to know everything. And uh, the thing is, I've, I've taken some strong positions on things, but uh, you know, you don't always know what's, uh, what's right or wrong, you know. Um, a last thing I want to talk about is the the effect of the the physical environment. Is there is there, is there any is there any uh, research confirming sage, saging uh, your place is beneficial? Huh? <laughs> I actually don't know. You don't know. Okay, don't know. this this would be interesting because I some people say that it it makes the ear cleaner apparently. So that's that's from the kind of uh, chemical or biological viewpoint, whatever. But then there's also the spiritual that says that you're uh, repelling the negative energies from your place. Right. Yeah, you, you probably heard that, right? It's like, yeah. The, yeah, cause I, I use, use sage usually and it seems, seems to be good. Things like that. I think people should study things like that as well. That's kind of outside, but people still use in ordinary life. What about what about um, like the kind of environment people stay in? Well, what is uh, what is their feeling or the research on that? So, uh, absolutely, the environment hugely determines our experience. Um, there's one perspective in personality research. I mean, this is actually coming from multiple perspectives, um, but it's coming from something called social cognitive theory. Social cognitive theory says that our personality is basically, I mean, the strongest claim here. I'm not saying any individual researcher is saying this. The strongest <laughs> claim is that <laughs> your personality is just something you construct in the moment to fit the environment and your needs. So it's basically saying like, who even cares if you have a personality on the inside? The point of your personality is to like shape and shift and morph to different situations. So I have like my coffee shop personality to get the coffee I want. I have my podcast personality. I have my personality to talk to my roommate about groceries. I have my personality like, and that like, that's literally what personality is. So it's saying environment is so important. It literally like determines who you become. Wow, it's like persona, like in Jung, Carl Jung, so talked about different masks we put on. Yes, yes. Wow. Yes. yes. And that's all tied um, into survival. Yes, yeah, and our social survival. So it's like, mm. uh, we all know like hunger and thirst are necessary mechanisms for us to have to stay alive, but uh, research also now considers loneliness to be a real drive. So our need for social connection, social support is just as important for our survival as thirst and hunger. And we actually feel real pain when we are socially ostracized. I think this is like a crisis or trauma many of us have gone through in the last year. Oh yeah. Needing yeah. to be isolated for different reasons. And part of that is like, yeah, we need other people to survive, but that's also like a part of who we are is the environment and the people around us and what we're immersed in. That's part of our real experience and we need it. Yeah, I think if uh, somebody, even if you go to school and if you have no friends and if you ostracize, I think the kind of experience you have would be way, uh, way worse than if you had like good friends and 
because that just makes you feel good. You see friends and you kind of, you know, so people don't realize how detrimental that is. I'm speaking from some personal experience where, where I've had uh, time periods where I didn't have many friends or was kind of alone. So I can, I can, yeah, there's definitely that. Um, is there anything that else you want to talk about before we close? I always like to ask this question to, to give it up to the guest. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, I absolutely love being on your podcast. This was so much fun. Uh, yeah, yeah. I love, I, I also love that, that you're in Sedona. That's just a great coincidence. It's amazing. Um, yeah. Would you consider coming back to visit Sedona sometime? Yeah. I mean, um, right now the world is in a weird place. I don't know. I even know if, I don't even know if they're allowing flights from Europe. They probably are right now. Oh, my camera is acting up, but I think it's still working. Oh. Yeah. There we go. We're back. <laughs> Well, Sedona's calling you if you feel like visiting again, but it was just so cool that you recognize where I am. Yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely feel like Sedona helped bring us together. Yeah, I, I didn't really know that you were, I, I thought first you were maybe someplace else. I thought maybe East Coast, but then I saw the Red Rocks. I was like, oh, wow, this is, looks quite warm there. <laughs> yeah, well, I actually did just move from the East Coast over here. Hmm. So you're cool. right about that yeah well it was great having you on the podcast Irene and um, thank you everybody for listening and watching the podcast